This is hell. Already then. Alex, I told you it would be a cold day when This is Hell finally went to a live weekday format. Pretty funny, huh? Cold day on This is Hell, and we're finally in a weekday live format. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host. Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, you get in trouble for making fun of Italian people when I do the hangover cure or not. <laughs> not sure if we're safe to go after Italian people or not. I've only heard Panatone pronounced Panatone by Americans who are pronouncing Panatone in the way that Panatone is spelled. How are you supposed to say it? I'm sure it's something Italian that I couldn't do. It would sound horrible. It was probably supposed to be like panettone or something like that. Actually, my Italian brother-in-law has corrected me on several occasions, and I'm just like, yeah, dude, I'm not going to try to fake an Italian accent. I have nightmares about mercy killing my family in a climate apocalypse. I don't have time to learn a new word. (laughs) This week. Really? Are you going to put that into a short story form for all of us to enjoy? I'd really like to see that. Uh, This week, we start by welcoming you to a new era for This Is Hell, and we're very excited about the changes we are implementing, putting in place, beginning, well, right now. Then we'll get into the hell that the deep deportation courts at the U.S.-Mexico border are. Who knew that would-be immigrants and refugees seeking asylum would not have any rights in court, including due process and confronting their accuser? Okay, I may not have known, but I sure as hell suspected that those hoping to enter the U.S. were not greeted with the open arms of justice, democracy, and equality, and instead met with antagonism and bigotry. I kind of figured that's what the U.S. deportation courts were like. Then we'll get to this week's rotten history with thanks to editor, researcher, and writer Ronaldo Magaldi. In the second hour of this week's hell, we'll go back to Ferguson to find out exactly why Ferguson was the site of the uprising against law enforcement and the social mechanisms that allowed rebellion to flourish. We'll chew on your thoughts sent to the listener feedback feedback at chuck at com. And following learning what you have to say, we'll get an update on where the struggle for abortion rights stands in the U.S. at this moment when we talk to a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter here in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit who is done with conservatives setting the agenda on reproductive rights as they have for far too long. We'll tell you what's happening this week during our bonus fifth hour of This Is Hell that you can hear every week by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. And in our final hour this of this week's show, if you think Scandinavia has all the answers for our socialist utopian future, prepare to have your bubble burst because Norway's relationship with climate change causing fossil fuels will definitely change your view on the green nature of the region. Of course, we'll have a question from hell during our first hour of this week's show. Or no, we're going to have a question from hell uh, later on on this week's show and a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, which we'll tell you more about later this week. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Our first guest this week is award-winning writer Madeline Schwartz, who wrote the New York Review of Books article, Inside the Deportation Courts. Madeline went to several border towns and visited the various types of courts that immigrants and those fleeing for their lives as refugees seeking asylum must interact with upon entering the U.S. or if they commit a crime in the U.S. or their visas have expired or a myriad of other reasons you probably didn't know could lead to deportation. Seeking a better life in a nation that wraps itself in liberty, freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, immigrants and refugees are instead confronted with a legal world that doesn't guarantee any rights or fairness or justice of any kind. Madeline's story is a tour of a rarely reported upon aspect of the brutal anti-immigration regime that is now in place here in the U.S. You can find her story at nybooks.com. Madeline's article, The End of Atlanticism, has Trump killed the idiot that won the Cold War, won this year's European Press Prize. You can find out more about Madeline at her website, MadelineSchwartz.com. Then later on this week's show, writer, teacher, and organizer with the feminist group National Women's Liberation, Jenny Brown, will join us to talk about her new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Uh, we'll be follow- She'll be followed by feminist and 
race scholar Andrea S. Boyles, Andrea S. Boyles, author of You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. Andrea is Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Lindenwood, Linderwood, no sorry, Lindenwood University, which is about a 20-minute drive from Ferguson. Our final guest on this week's show is the Doctoral Research Fellow of History at the University of Oslo, Henrik Olav Matheson, a mythbuster who wrote the Dark Mountain Project story, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. The longer subtitle states Equinor. Norway's state-owned oil and gas company is riding headlong into the world's fossil-fueled sunset, whilst its cowboy nation is trotting comfortably along in its trail. You can find that article at dark-mountain.net, dark-mountain.net. Then Jeff in a moment of truth, and Alex will clue us in on what's happening on up uh, next week's shows now in our newly scheduled Monday and Wednesday at 10 in the morning slot and every Tuesday for two hours at 2 p.m. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. Uh, this week's Hangover Cure is drink like an Italian. What does your mom hold the glass for you? That was the joke I was wondering if I'd get in trouble for making. According to the local.it article that we've been citing for the last few weeks headlined Italy's best and weirdest hangover cures, we promise you this will be the last time we'll be quoting the story. It states, the only surefire way to escape a hangover is to drink less than the night before. So next time you're out of town, follow out on the town, follow the lead of the Italians and swap uh, rounds of shots for a simple digestif. Since they tend to savor their alcohol alongside a meal, alcohol abuse is less common in Italy than in many other European countries, and lots of Italians claim never to suffer hangovers. I'm sorry, didn't know this. Yeah. Pull that down, sorry. That makes this week's hangover cure, drinking like an Italian. With special thanks again to our rotten history researcher and editor, Ronaldo Magaldi, who found the last week's uh, last few weeks' Italian hangover cures. Did we mention that Ronaldo is Italian? <laughs> you know, uh... Uh, I thought drinking like an Italian, Alex, are you ready for this joke? I thought drinking like an Italian was uh, all you do is you drink while flirting with a fascist. Uh, See, everyone, that's way worse than what I said. (laughs) You are listening to God's favorite radio show or podcast or live stream or whatever this thing has become. This is hell. And we have entered a new era here on This Is Hell. It's not the first time we've had changes, major alterations to what we do here on This Is Hell, how we tailor our show. We've gone from being the emergency one-hour public affairs program that we were told was desperately needed by our station, WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, as the people in charge were afraid of losing the station's license due to falling short of whatever community service requirements the FCC was demanding. We never really found out how much of a threat that really was, but who cares? We got a time, we got time on air. That's all that mattered. I could not have cared less if it was because of a real possibility of a legacy historic community station like WNUR that it was going to get its plug pulled or if the freaks running the place were simply paranoid. I didn't really care. We were getting a show and we got a show. Shortly after, we would settle into a one-hour Saturday morning slot, but only for a summer when Northwestern University students had gone home as the station is a university student-run resource. Student broadcasters and student programming gets priority over what I and many others who contribute a significant amount of content to WNUR are known as, that's us, community DJs, even though I haven't jockeyed a disc in decades. So for a few months, they had us on Sunday mornings for not one, but two hours at six in the freaking morning. Now you couldn't get Wesley Willis into our studio at six in the morning or out of bed for that matter. Jeff Dorchin, who still does the moment of truth to this day, he wasn't going to get out of bed that early in the morning. The original guitarist for OK Go, who was producing our show, Andrew, hell, He wasn't going to be awake that early because of his band's brutal tour schedule as they were just breaking out at the time. So we had to pre-record the show, but I didn't want to lose the authentic, honest, live energy aspect of the show, so we pre-recorded on Saturday mornings at 10. And I would bring the cassettes, or I think we were using what were called DATS, digital audio tapes at the time, a format that was 
Very short-lived, like many new media formats are and continue to be as built-in obsolescence is completely tolerated in our disposable world that we humans are pretty much done with and are ready to put to the curb. But even at 10 the next morning following a Friday night show, Andrew was spent, completely beat, burnout, and it was a fairly common occurrence to find Andrew actually sleeping, arms folded, face down, right on the mixing board. Back then, there was a moment when we thought our, for certain our show was going to be canceled. Hell, we even have a cassette for a show in 1998 marked The Last Show. Not everyone at NUR was crazy about us. Uh, I had fun doing what we were doing, but I wasn't all that happy with the show either. One show, I ad-libbed for three hours doing nothing but reading the newspaper. I remember another NUR staff member walking through the studio, and I convinced him to sit sit in with me for what must have been a very uncomfortable 20-plus minutes for him. We were trying everything. Dave Buchan's first appearance on This Is Hell had nothing to do with Puerto Rico, although he would become our correspondent there shortly after as he reported to us on the protests against U.S. military target bombing at their military base on the Puerto Rican island of Vieques. Dave's first appearance was actually a joke about how all the local TV stations here in Chicago were in this battle over who had a traffic helicopter and who didn't. And then one of the outlets escalated the war by getting two, count them, two helicopters. Although the footage they used to boast of their two choppers was simply a single image of the same helicopter reversed. That's how lame the fight over traffic copters was. So I came up with a bit and told Dave I would call him on the phone, put him on air, and pretend he was about to be launched in the air for the very first traffic rocket in the history of Chicago broadcasting. Dave played it perfectly, acting the skeptical guinea pig, ready to be launched into space. We played rocket launching sound effects and then waited for Dave's first traffic report, which went something like, Well, I don't think we thought this all the way through because I can't see any cars from this high in space. Realizing our mistake, I wish Dave luck. He asked how he planned to get how we planned to get him safely back to Earth, and that's when we hung up on him. I mean, we were trying everything. But once we started airing at a regular time every week and we were given more and more time and expanding to two, three, and eventually four hours. With me doing one five-hour show on the weekend of the Battle for Seattle uh, during the WTO protests, a five-hour show that led me to getting shingles at a very young age for getting shingles. Once we had more time and were on a regular schedule, we wouldn't have that lack of schedule to distract us, the seeming lack of support the station had for the show. At one point, a student was very upset about us doing four hours every Saturday morning and what we like to call the hangover shift because no student wants to do a show on Saturday mornings as they likely all have hangovers. I know I do every Saturday morning, and I'm doing the show. They were upset. student who was upset was upset and wanted one of our hours every week, but not the first hour or the last hour. They wanted some odd hour in the middle of our four-hour shift. Our producer at the time, Kate O'Donnell, was the station's general manager. As I was told the story, her position did not allow her to comment specifically on any programming, especially because she had a conflict of interest being the producer of the show. We needed someone else on the board to stand up for us. And in steps Will Butler, as in Arcade Fire's guitarist Will Butler. Will and apparently all of Arcade Fire were sharing an apartment with Kate at the time, and as Will liked our show, he stepped in and... We got to keep our slot. We've gone through plenty of producers, board operators, and engineers. Not only the guy from OK Go or someone who lived with Arcade Fire while she was an undergraduate. We've had staff members who ended up being leading analysts on Iran, a doctor who worked with several professional sports teams and I think is now suing the city of Portland, Maine. A couple of people who are now teaching school in Manhattan, one of which was a producer on the original Air America Mark Marin show. One former producer... Just had his first kid last week. Congratulations, Drew. We've had crew. We've had crew who have uh, come from a wide variety of backgrounds, and each and every one of them has had a major impact on the content of this show. All that said, throughout the entire history of this is how one thing has been constant, and that thing is 
to get the hell off doing four straight hours of live radio every Saturday morning without any commercial interruptions or interruptions of any kind, forcing me at times to run to the bathroom immediately following asking a guest a question. Uh, always amazing, Alex, at how quickly I can sprint, pee, run back, catch my breath, and ask the next question as if nothing had happened. Look, I love doing it. I love doing the show, and doing four hours was an incredible challenge, but there's a reason nobody does four straight hours without any interruption. It's friggin' difficult, and it's rough physically, and if it's rough physically, you can bet doing it over and over again for 20-plus years. It's not great for you emotionally or mentally either. From the beginning, we've always wanted to be a weekday show, to be a bigger part of that daily zeitgeist and not sequestered away on Saturday mornings and then, with a week's worth of pressure building, release the show like a fire hose of information for four solid and what were, for me, grueling hours. Now we can, with the help of you, our listeners who have gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support, and those who are subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell, and those who have joined us during our annual listener appreciation and anniversary parties in July, and those who hang out with us on Wednesday nights during our weekly meet and greet, This Is Hell office hours, and all the listeners who have sent us completely unsolicited gifts, including some of the equipment our new jerry-rigged studio is currently using that is totally in a Appropriate for a, a podcast or a broadcast or a stream and is ancient, but we're certainly not complaining because without that incredible support from you, we wouldn't be doing this show as we speak or at last, at least as, as I speak, whatever. Without all your contributions, this would not be possible. We would not have finally realized the show's lifelong dream of not working on weekends and being more of a part of the ongoing conversation, whatever that conversation is. Although knowing our show will probably still be outside everyone else's public discourse and continue doing shows like this week when we discuss abusive and unjust deportation courts that for whatever reason are being ignored in the debate over immigration in the concentration camps at the U.S.-Mexico border, we'll likely still fall outside conventional wisdom as we will today by not simply moving on from Ferguson to the next news event and actually go back to see what activists can learn from that abolitionist revolution. And you know you are not going to hear someone arguing for not having kids and having abortion rights because the media frames all women's issues within the parameters of freaking evangelicals. And who the hell else is talking about Norway's vast contribution to climate change? Nobody outside of the Norwegian who we are going to be talking to later this week. So thanks to everyone for helping us into this new age of This Is Hell, the new weekday This Is Hell. Thanks to all of you who are listening during the live stream as it is happening now. Those who listen to the podcast at thisishell.com, who listen on WNUR or Lumpen Radio or Radio Free Moscow, thank you for making this possible. Thank you for your support and thank you for your patience with our schedule lately. And finally, excuse our dust as we are not done with all the changes here at This Is Hell. So, Stay tuned in, subscribe to us on Patreon, and as we move forward into the future with more and more tweaks we are doing to the show, but no matter how much we change, we promise that forever, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Coming up, we start this week's show by getting an inside look into the very unjust justice system immigrants and asylum seekers encounter when trying to enter or stay in the U.S. Then during our second hour, we'll return to Ferguson and discover the lessons learned from that uprising. Next, we'll get caught up on what's happening on the fight over abortion rights. Our last guest this week will reveal just how bad Norway is for climate change. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. We'll also have Rotten History, listener feedback, what we've been up to on Patreon, and all sorts of other stuff. Who knows what will happen during this, our first week, airing, streaming, podcasting, whatever we're doing on weekdays. Live from the United States, where people Property has more rights than people. This is hell. Immigrants trying to enter the U.S., immigrants trying to stay in the U.S., and refugees fleeing for their lives in hopes of finding asylum in the land of the free and the home of the brave all have to deal with thoroughly unjust, arbitrary, and what seem to be mean-spirited deportation courts. Here to guide us through an aspect of the immigration debate that has gone far too overlooked for far too long, award-winning writer Madeline Schwartz's author of the New York Review of Books article, Inside the Deportation Courts, which you can find at 
uh, nybooks.com. And you can find out more about Madeline at her website, madelineschwartz.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at mmschwartz. Welcome to This Is Hell, Madeline. Good morning. It's great to have you on our show at our first guest on our first regularly scheduled Monday morning show after 23 years of being on for four hours on Saturday mornings. This is a pleasure, Madeline. Thank you so much for being on our show. You write that Thank Port, you for having me. That Port Isabel Detention Center is at the end of a long road lined with bush and cotton fields in the Rio Grande Valley of southern Texas, 10 miles from the Mexican border. Around 1,200 people detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, are held there at any given time. Some were apprehended at the border. Others were arrested after a traffic violation. In 2015, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission found that the center violated the Fifth Amendment rights of migrants detained there because it did not not offer due process protections, although the conditions resembled those of a jail. We often take our rights as citizens here in the United States for granted. So for those who are not immigrants, who do not have family or friends who are immigrants who have experienced this, what kind of due process protections are migrants not getting that U.S. citizens kind of just expect otherwise? Well, I think, you know, we, we grew up with this idea that justice is a cornerstone of of what the United States is all about. And the truth is that for immigrants coming to the United States or pe- even people who have been in the United States for a very long time, um, the justice system is deeply unjust. Um, migrants who are trying to stay in the United States or who are coming to the United States don't go through a normal judiciary system. They go through a system of immigration courts that are controlled not by the judiciary branch, but by the executive branch. For Because of this difference, they are denied a number of rights that we consider to be very common rights, whether that's access to an attorney um, or even rights that control... um, how their cases are adjudicated, things like what kind of evidence can be allowed in court, um, and and that sort of thing. You mentioned the, how the courts are not under the auspices of the judicial branch, but the executive branch. When I was reading that in your article, what I didn't understand is that seems to be a direct contradiction of, and I don't know about the Constitution, but when I, what I learned in grade school about history, that we have three separate branches, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. How is it that the executive branch got this power over what should be part of the judicial branch? They are our courts. They shouldn't be run by the executive branch. So how did this happen? How did this take place? Well, um, the United States has a number of different kinds of courts. And so, yes, the courts that we think of as courts, the kinds you see on law and order, or um, are are run through the judiciary, but a number of other courts are run through the executive. And in the case of immigration courts, these courts are controlled by the Executive Office of Immigration Review, which is EOIR, which is actually part of the Department of Justice. So the person who basically, you know, dictates, or I shouldn't say dictate, but who um, has oversight over what happens in these courts is the Attorney General, who, of course, is part of the executive branch. So, uh, all right, so we have these executive, we have different types of courts, and we have these deportation courts that are run by the, uh, or at least controlled by the executive branch. This has been going on now for, I think, in your writing, you talk about how this began in about 1952 for some 60-some years, and this hasn't really been taken off the books. How much are these deportation courts run by the executive branch more politicized than typical courts are because, uh, how much is that continue, how much is that sustained, because that gives power to either the Democratic or the Republican Party. Are these both polit- are the these deportation courts politicized in the reason that they remain politicized is it gives political power to the political parties? Well the evolution of the immigration courts is a very long one that has happened over the course of decades. And I think for a large part a lot of the administrative changes that have gone through these courts have gone largely unnoticed because they're part of the administration, they're part of the bureaucracy, and people don't really pay a huge amount of attention. What has happened is that because they are within the executive branch and because there is no, they're not in a separate branch of government, 
as a result, if someone should decide to, you know, hey, I actually think that I want to make a large scale change of, of how immigration happens in the United States, that person would have the executive branch would have um, a very easy ability to do so. So what we've seen is that over the course of this administration, there have been huge large-scale changes in the way that immigration courts are run, um, whether that is the imposition of quotas for the number of cases that judges have to go through in a single year, which is currently at 700 cases a year, or whether it's the rules that, does, that determine um, who is eligible for asylum, whether, for example, um, someone uh, escaping domestic violence is eligible for asylum. These are also rules that are then de- determined by the executive branch. Huge, large-scale changes. So does that mean that whatever the Trump administration implements during their four or eight years in office when it comes to immigration policy, does that mean that that is easy to change back. Could a much more friendly uh, administration, I don't care if it's a Republican Party or Democratic Party administration, could a much more friendly administration simply fix all of the problems that Trump caused in a quick fashion so we could undo many of the problems that he has caused at the border? Uh, That is a good question and not one that I have an answer to. I will say that because Uh, the immigration courts sit in a somewhat uneasy place, you know, being part of the executive branch, but in some ways also um, responding to the judiciary branch, um, changes back would certainly be very difficult. And And in a number of cases, I think things have been set in motion that would be very hard to to stop. So one thing that has happened under this administration is it used to be that judges in immigration courts had a power of administrative closure which is to say that if a judge had a case in front of him or her that um, he he thought, you know, was really not worth pursuing, that he could just close it himself. And, and under Jeff Sessions, that power was taken away. And in addition to that, um, all cases that had been administratively closed in the past, so that's 350,000 cases, can now be reopened. So that means that if someone was in court proceedings and was told the judge, you know, decided not to pursue this, actually now they have to go back in front of a judge again. The other big change that I think is going to be difficult to to move back from or move away from um, has to do with hiring. Um, there's been a huge push to hire more immigration judges and because of the number of people who have retired and the number of new judges that have come on, um, the Trump administration has appointed um, almost 200 new immigration judges, which means that almost half of the new immigration judges who are currently, uh, of all of the immigration judges who are in courts currently, have been appointed to this administration. And to give just a sense of the kinds of people who are being brought in to, uh, to be judges, about half of those people uh, previously worked for ICE. So they have these immigration judge, uh, judges who seem to have a uh, conflict of interest, you would think at the very least. But through all these changes that are happening with the Trump administration, what is the impact on the people who are trying to get into the United States, who are trying to stay into the United States? What is the impact on the people that you spoke with on the inconsistency, on the constant changing of rules, on the constant uh, mounting of restrictions on immigration and being able to stay in the country? Did you, do you talk to anybody about that kind of inconsistency and how things are constantly changing and the impact on their lives? Yeah, I think it is uh, hugely difficult uh, you know, for, for lawyers trying to make the case um, their clients and of course for people coming through uh, who who are seeking asylum most of whom I should say don't have lawyers so I spent for this article I spent about a week um, in the Rio Grande Valley so that's um, in Texas right near the Mexican border sitting in on different kinds of courts and just observing what um, what was happening and one thing that is very common is that people who are trying to put together an asylum claim, are suddenly 
confronted with a huge number of rules and regulations that are very difficult even for a lawyer to understand. And the evidence that they have to produce um, is extremely, you know, they're required to put together a, a huge amount of evidence certified, translated by a, a certified translator into English. You can imagine the difficulties of finding such a translator if you are, for example, in a detention center and facing a number of rules that are constantly changing. Um, uh, over the course of this administration, um, the attorney general has determined that things that used to qualify someone for asylum no longer do. And for a lawyer, that will mean having to reconceive an, a person's case to match the existing rules. And for someone who doesn't have a lawyer, you know, you've already been exposed to this huge number of rules that are very, very difficult to understand. And now you're being told that the rules no longer apply. We are speaking with award-winning writer Madeline Schwartz. She is author of the New York Review of Books article, Inside the Deportation Courts. Madeline is launching a new iteration of the magazine, The Dial. And correct me if any of this is wrong, Madeline, a critically acclaimed literary and literary criticism magazine that started in the mid-18th century and published until the late 1920s. The magazine was known for publishing groundbreaking work, like the first publication of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. Is that correct? Do I have everything right there about The Dial? That is correct. Uh, yes, it's um, a, an amazing legacy ma- magazine. So where are we going to be able to find this in the future? Are you going to making a website, or is it going to be a print version? Uh, no, it'll be a print and online magazine, um, hopefully coming sometime next year. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, so um, you write that at Port Isabel, inmates in a small courtroom were struggling to understand how to put together an asylum claim. Many of them, as you were saying, did not speak English. The court requires evidence, court documents, police reports that proves that a migrant is endangered in his or her home country. And this evidence must be translated into English by a certified translator. How difficult is it to prove that as an asylum seeker, you are in danger, your life is at risk, or at least to the level of proof that the U.S. Customs requires? Well, I think it is very difficult, and you can't underestimate how difficult it is. And there are uh, several reasons why it's difficult, and I'll just highlight two. The first is that these claims can take very, very long to put together because, as you just said, there's a huge amount of evidence that is required to, to prove that someone is in danger. And if you talk to lawyers who are used to putting together these claims, they'll say that they're, you know, they often try to work on this timeline of several months to make sure that the claim is as airtight as possible. Um, for someone in the detention center, they probably don't have a lawyer and they also don't have several months. Um, often they'll have one week or two to put together this evidence evidence that, you know, might mean police reports or, um, or court records, evidence that it's extremely impossible to get uh, from inside a detention court when you're thinking that it would need to come from another country. Um, the second thing that makes an asylum claim very, very difficult is that different judges have different standards for for what constitutes asylum, or I should say, interpret the rules regulating asylum very differently. And if you um, if you look at the asylum grant grant rates um, of a judge, for example, in New York or in Chicago, those are likely to be very different from the the rates of um, of granting asylum of the courts along the border. So that a judge in New York might grant asylum to 80% of the cases that he or she sees in front of him within a given year. And a judge along the border might deny 80% of the cases that he or she sees in front of him in a given year. What explains that disparity? I mean, I might have missed something in there, but what explains that disparity? Why would judges in New York be far more lenient than the judges at the border? I think there are a few possible explanations um, but in a large part, it comes to the fact that that individual judges might have, you know, drastically different interpretations of, of, of the asylum law and the degree to which someone fears for their safety in, in their home country. Um, but I think it's, 
it's troubling as an outsider to 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 see that disparity because it does make you wonder uh, to to what extent you know our our rules are being understood correctly and the, any individual state in the system is is tied to the law or to what extent is it tied to you know the personality or outlook of a particular judge. That was one of the things I was thinking about was how these courts would seem to be. Uh, more politicized. But I don't want to use that word because, well, you write the Trump administration has hired nearly 200 new judges and plans to add at least 100 more. Nearly half of sitting immigration judges were appointed by Trump. And as you were pointing out earlier, and about half of these new judges had previously been attorneys for ICE. So how political then are these deportation courts? And how much should that concern us? After all, aren't all courts to some extent, isn't all justice, isn't everything to some degree political? So why should we be concerned about the potential politicization of the deportation courts when everything's political? I'm trying to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Well, I think, you know, no matter the personal conviction of any individual judge, the way that the system of the courts is set up, I would say, um, encourages certain kinds of decision-making over others. For one thing, um, as we've discussed, you know, hiring comes from within the attorney general's office, within EOIR. um, And so already the administration has a huge amount of oversight over who gets to become a judge in the first place. Once that happens, there's also a number of mechanisms put in place that I would say uh, strongly encourage one kind of decision-making over another. The fact that there are quotas for the number of cases um, um, that are that have to be decided every year and that judges, you know, fear sanctions should those cases, should that quota not be fulfilled, means that in effect, judges are being encouraged to go through cases quickly, which means speeding up the amount of time that anyone might have to go through their claim and also encouraging um, people to, to leave the country. You write only two of the defendants on one day that you were in the Port Isabella Detention Center had lawyers with them. All the defendants wore blue or green or blue or orange suits labeled PIDC for Port Island Detention Center and sat separated by gender, men on one row of wooden benches, women on the other. I sat in the back of the courtroom where a guard made sure I could not talk to anyone. What do you think immigration courts don't want immigrants to say to journalists? Why don't they want detained immigrants talking to the press and people like you? Um, well, um, I think that when it comes to the situations in the detention centers, there have been, you know, it is, it is very difficult to access the parts of the detention centers where people are actually living and get information about what happens there you know, I, I was able to go into the courtroom, but not able to, to see where where people are, are stuck and where they're spending their, their daily life. And in fact, in Port Isabel Detention Center, there have been cases where people have been retaliated against for trying to speak either to the press or to visiting politicians. Um, I think it was last year that a woman was forced into solitary confinement for trying to tell a visiting official that she had been separated from her child. And so there's, you know, quite a lot of presence and pressure to make sure that that people are not talking about their experiences and that those experiences are not being coming out into the press. When it comes to immigrants' lack of rights in deportation courts, to what extent do immigrants face, instead of presumed innocence, presumed guilt? And that is, you know, guilty before being proven innocent. Well, I think the normal rules that we think of as being hallmarks of the American justice system, whether it's the principle of um, of innocent until being proven guilty or clear and convincing evidence, just really don't apply in immigration courts. And one way that this is illustrated rather starkly is that um, is that if you are called to come into an immigration court, the only thing that the government 
really has to prove is that you're not a U.S. citizen. And after that, it is up to you, the, the immigrant, to, to argue your way into a form of relief. Um, and relief can be asylum. Um, it can also be something like voluntary departure, which is just um, essentially agreeing to leave on your own expense. Um, this means that for someone in the immigration court system, once they're in the system, it is up to them and to the attorney, if they have one, to figure out an argument by which they can stay in the United States. So you write that President Trump's uh, transformation of immigration law is being executed at 60-odd courts around the country dedicated to processing migrants. Is anything that Trump is doing new? Is this part of Trump's policies or a leftover from the Obama administration that has just been exaggerated, built upon, exacerbated under Trump? To what extent can we blame this simply on Trump? And to what extent can we blame this on a long arch of anti-immigration policy that seems to have been going on now for several administrations? Well, the evolution of the immigration courts has a, a long and complex history. And I think that a number of changes have happened over um, a number of American administrations. Um, and notably, uh, there were a number of changes, I think, in the Bush administration that affect what is happening now. And I should say that the problems of of judicial independence um, and the concerns from both people within the immigration judges community and outside of it that that judges are being encouraged to decide things one way and not another, those concerns have been around from a pre-Trump era. I think that what is new um, is the, the number of changes and the scale of those changes, and that this current administration has really taken advantage of the way that these courts are set set up to push through a number of, of changes that are very obviously geared at making sure that fewer people can come into the country and the people who are here can't stay. You point out that uh, Trump has often called the idea of asylum a loophole in the immigration system. Do you believe the right that the Republican Party, that conservatism, wants to end the ability of refugees to seek asylum in the U.S.? And is that in any violation of any law, domestic or international? Do you think the right is now just... We're just completely against any asylum, any refugees whatsoever. And what, how does that impact our relationship with international law? Well, I think that uh, the, this, this administration has clearly been doing almost everything it can to make the concept of asylum meaningless. And, you know, I think you can see through the number of cases that have been brought against some of these changes that it very much goes against basic American principles and basic principles of justice. Um, yeah. So what do you think, what message do you think it sends the world when the U.S., uh, the government acts as if it's not only anti-immigrant, but also anti-refugee? How do you think that affects the way that the U.S. is seen throughout the world? Uh, well, I don't think it's great for PR, to put it mildly. Um, but I also think that it has, um, I think it has large-scale ramifications, both for, for people coming to the United States and for, for immigration laws in other countries. I mean, you know, obviously we live in a time of enormous, enormous migration. And, um, and I think that the, the fact that the United States should really be turning away from actually its own history as a country of, of, of immigration. Um, I, I don't quite know how to put this, but I, I think uh, could unfortunately be encouraging to other countries that, that are also thinking to, to tighten uh, their own laws when it comes to asylum and, and the general movement of people. Yeah, it would seem like it'd be a very, it's a real threat to uh, humanitarianism of all kinds. So, so do, to what extent do immigrants, do refugees, do, do those who are seeking asylum in the United States, 
to what extent do they even get a chance to explain why they are fleeing to the United States? How aware are the deportation court judges of the actual instances that has led that person to be at the border claiming that their life is in danger? Um, well, they nominally, um, they do all get a chance if, to put through an asylum application. But the truth is that um, in in a lot of places, these you know, an immigration, an asylum application is pushed through very quickly. And there isn't actually quite a lot of time to, to explain what is going on. Um, and, and, and in a large part, I think it can be, yeah, that's all I'll say right now. <laughs> All right. So uh, how aware are immigrants of the reasons why they are not being allowed into the United States? Are they how aware are they when they are when the uh, judge does decide I'm not going to grant you asylum or I'm not going to allow your immigration status to go through? How aware are they of the reasoning for that denial? Um, I think it really depends on the case and it also very much depends on um <clears throat> on whether they have access to an attorney, an attorney who can explain what is going on. I mean, I think also one thing that we haven't talked about that I, I do think it's important to highlight is that um, since the beginning of this year, the administration has been rolling out um, what's called the Remain in Mexico program by or migrant protection protocols by which people who are waiting for um, their court cases are being forced to stay in Mexico and in large part are staying in towns that are right on the other side of the border um, from the United States and towns that are extremely dangerous. People who are in those towns are often staying in shelters or in tent camps. And for the most part, they, whatever difficulties they might have finding a lawyer in the United States are compounded by a hundred or a thousand percent by the fact that they're in Mexico and can't really communicate with anyone who's explaining what's going on for people who are in, um, who are in Mexico currently, there's almost no resource to understand how to make an asylum claim or even what are these rules that seem to be changing day by day that, um, that really dictate where they're living and, and what's going to happen to them. And you talk about how they are expanding more and more, and you write that the new tents that are showing up at the border, instead of having these more permanent facilities, they're having courtrooms that are just made out of, they're just tents. The new tents are part of the Remain in Mexico program, which the government has rolled out over the course of the last year. Remain in Mexico or Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, make migrants with a court date uh, wait on the other side of the border, on the Mexican side. Some 37,000 people are currently waiting in Mexico in cities like Ciudad Juarez, across from El Paso or Tijuana near San Diego. According to the International Organization for Migration, the immigrants waiting in Brownsville are being sent to Matamoros in the state of Tamaulipas. Um, The Department of Justice will see 720 cases a day in these tent courts using video conferencing. According to the New York Times, Ken Cuccinelli, the acting director of the U.S. Citizen, Citizenship and Immigration Services, recently called the technology through which judges conduct hearings very impressive. In your opinion, what do you think happens to justice when it is done remotely and in this very secretive way? Uh, well, I don't think we can really call it justice anymore. Um, there are a huge number <clears throat> of problems with these tent courts, starting from the very basic fact that it is uh, the relationship between a judge and someone who's communicating via Skype is quite different from someone appearing before a judge in person. And if you think of any basic technological difficulty that one might have, you know, imagine having your life and death depend on the reception or the um, ability of a of a video conferencing system to work correctly and to show your facial expressions to allow you to communicate clearly. Um, it obviously raises the barrier even more for someone who's trying to come into the United States. Um, the other thing that I think is very troubling about these uh, tent courts is that <clears throat> um, so far as I know, and when I was in um, in Brownsville, they were still being constructed, but they've, they've been open. And so far as I know, journalists and members of the public have not been allowed inside. 
<clears throat> and so um, it's very difficult for U.S. citizens even to know what is happening and, and how these cases are unfolding. You mentioned how uh, you have to give up your rights when you go in front of a uh, deportation court judge. You write, or you explain how the judge in this one case in a McAllen criminal courtroom, Magistrate Juan Alanis, asked each prisoner, did you have a chance to review with an attorney your right to remain silent and a right to trial? And after meeting with an attorney, are you willing to give up those rights? Why must you give up your rights when facing immigration charges? So the court that I went to um, in McAllen uh, runs in some ways parallel to the courts that we've been discussing. Um, And these are, um, and that was in the federal courthouse, and it was specifically for people who had been arrested for crossing the border. So in that case, it isn't their claim to stay in the United States that's in question. It's the fact that they have uh, broken the law, and this is a very old law that has in some ways only recently been revived by, by crossing um, for anyone who is, is charged through that misdemeanor, which is um, called 1325, they are now facing a double, a double penalty of both being charged through the American criminal justice system and then having to go through immigration court proceedings. So you also point out that the government uses vague allegations of criminal history, such as gang affiliations, that it points to, but refuses to prove to justify these family separations, according to recent papers compiled by the Texas Civil Rights Project, the ACLU, and other groups. They argue that relatives crossing together are not a real family. How are immigrant families not seen as real families by the court? So um, after this after the family separation, um, the, the fact of family separation um, was sort of reported on in the press, and obviously there was a huge public outcry. Um, Trump signed an executive order, and there was also a federal court ruling um, deeming that these separations should not happen, except that there were two, a few exceptions to the rule, um, and those were um, had to do with if someone had a criminal history and... Um, if they had a communicable disease. Um, What has happened now is that family separations are still occurring and and occurring often uh, for reasons that can be difficult for lawyers to understand. Um, Sometimes people are told that their child has been separated from them because that they have been found to have belonged to a gang and Um, From what I can understand, these allegations are not proven by the government and can be quite vague. Or the government has sort of unilaterally decided that only certain kinds of relationships count as as family relationships. So that, you know, a father and a son, oh, that's a family. But an uncle and a nephew, you know... That's not. Yeah. Uh, You write that after Sessions' push for zero tolerance of illegal entry, arrests under Section 1325 improper entry by alien drastically increased, taking away resources from other areas of law enforcement, such as drug smuggling and sex trafficking. How aware are Trump supporters that he prioritizes his anti-immigration agenda over his anti-sex trafficking or war on drugs policies? Is immigration law violation the leading law enforcement and justice system priority in the United States right now under the Trump administration, not rape or murder or violence or any other kind of offense? But immigration law is immigration law now the number one priority of law enforcement and justice under Trump administration. Um, well, I, I can't I can't speak for um, for what Trump's how Trump supporters view um, these changes, but I can say that you know uh, these two misdemeanors, so Section thirteen twenty five and which is uh, improper entry by alien and Section. Uh, 1326, which makes unauthorized re-entry a crime, are together the most prosecuted federal crimes in the United States. Um, And that's according to the American Immigration Council. Um, And I think that 
you know, it really calls into question what what we what we think of as as the, the right uses of law enforcement and and what law enforcement should be doing. For the most part, the people who are crossing the border are not criminals, pose no threat to to anyone in the United States, and yet um, prosecuting them and bringing them in front of of a judge and then putting them in jail is is a huge use of, of government resources and, and finite resources uh, with no perceptible effect on, on anyone's safety. One last question for you, Madeline. We've been speaking with award-winning writer Madeline Schwartz, author of the New York Review of Books article, Inside the Deportation Courts. You can find Madeline's story at nybooks.com. Madeline's article, The End of Atlanticism, has... Uh, Trump killed the ideology that won the Cold War, won the 2019 European Press Prize. Madeline is on the board of the National Book Critics Circle. You can follow Madeline on Twitter at M.M. Schwartz, and you can find out more about Madeline at her own website, MadelineSchwartz.com. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You write, still one local immigration lawyer told me, Port Isabel Detention Center is not as bad as other places. A detained migrant might end up. At least there's a library. At least there are medical services. So there are border detention centers holding people who are not protected by any rights, who are staying in places that look and act like jails, where they are separated from their children and there are no medical services and nothing to alleviate detainee stress or anxiety like a library. We recently spoke with political theory and constitutional law scholar Jack Jackson, author of Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics in the American Right. Given the definition of concentration camps being a place where large numbers of people, such as prisoners of war, political prisoners, refugees, or the members of an ethnic or religious minority, are detained or confined under armed guard, Jack argues the border detention center's are concentration camps. Madeline, do you believe the detention centers are accurately defined as concentration camps? I think that that is, um, you know, as a historian of concentration camps, believes that that is the correct, uh, the correct terminology. I am more than content to defer to him. I think that no matter what you call them, these detention centers are unjust and any terminology we can use to raise awareness and to draw attention to them is the right terminology to use. Madeline, thank you so much for being on our show today. This article is something that I think has been overlooked when it comes to the coverage of immigration policy by the Trump administration, the deportation courts, the actual mechanism that they're using for deportation, the the fake justice that they're using for deportation is something that has long been overlooked. I really appreciate your writing on this, and thank you so much for being our very first guest on our first weekly live streaming show. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me and for drawing attention to this. All right. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I love that tagline. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, October 17th, 1814, at London's Horseshoe Brewery. Who knew you could brew horseshoes? A huge wooden vat groaning under the internal pressure of more than 30 tons of fermenting porter. Oh, they were brewing beer, not horseshoes. Uh, The pressure snapped the vat's metal restraining hoops and burst open, causing another vat next to it to also explode. An estimated two to 300,000 imperial gallons of beer were released with such sudden force that it blew open a brick wall, crushing a teenage girl to death on the sidewalk outside the brewery. See, I told you alcohol was more dangerous than weed. Have you ever heard of a marijuana farm exploding and killing a little girl? I didn't think so. The Beer Deluge. I love that band, Beer Deluge. The Beer Deluge. Deluge? Deluge? Swept into the street in a 15-foot-high wave, knocking down two houses, heavily damaging two more and flooding into crowded basement flats inhabited by the neighborhood's poorest residents. I mean, where else are you going to put a stinky, smelly brewery that may explode? You put it in the poorer part of town, that's where environmental classism is long 
had a very deadly history under capitalism. Seven more people were drowned or otherwise killed in the brewery explosion and subsequent porter flood, including three small children. A court would later decide to hold the Horseshoe Brewery liable for the disaster, declaring it was an unavoidable act of God, because as the Bible tells us, God is a very dangerous and inexperienced brewmaster. The British Parliament granted the brewery a massive tax waiver so that it could recover from its losses. Meanwhile, residents of the neighborhood received nothing, because that's an act of God too, at least under capitalism. The rich are always rewarded for their deadly bottom-line-oriented mistakes, and the poor suffer and are even killed without any compensation for their survivors. Look, the segment's called Rotten History. You were warned at the beginning. In Rotten History, October 18, 1963, not to be outdone by U.S. and Soviet space achievements, a group of French scientists launched a black-and-white tuxedo cat named Felicette into space aboard a Veronique AG-1-sounding rocket because while the Russians preferred dogs as their space guinea pigs, we miss you, Laika, wherever you are. And the U.S. liked to use monkeys. The French simply hated cats. In fact, France's whole space program was based on the mission to rid the entire nation of all of its cats. Beforehand, France had subjected the cat to two months of laboratory training. You know, calculus, chemistry, biology, that kind of thing. And the French scientists implanted electrodes in the cat's skull so they could monitor its brainwaves. Felicet's brainwaves during the 13-minute suborbital flight. In French newsreel footage, Felicet can be heard meowing loudly while being strapped into a metal bracket, put through various tortures, and finally inserted into the rocket's nose cone. Apparently, the entire French space program was about torturing cats and launching them into space. Launched from a French test facility in recently independent Algeria, because you're not going to do that kind of stuff in France, the cat experienced more than 9 Gs of acceleration and 5 minutes of weightlessness as she soared 100 miles above the Earth and came down in a parachute, landing in the Sahara Desert. Felicet survived, and French scientists called the flight a success, citing a wealth of data obtained, although nobody ever asked Felicet, who was suspiciously not made available for post-flight interviews or press conferences. Two months later, they killed Felicet so they could dissect her body and examine her brain. In the meantime, a second cat strapped into a similar rocket had died after a launch malfunction. Remember the good old days when science had not no ethics whatsoever, when we could put toxic makeup on pigs, force monkeys to smoke cigarettes, and shoot domestic pets into space? Ethics have really taken all the fun out of science. Finally in Rotten History, October 20th, 1944, 75 years ago, at the East Ohio Gas Company on the shores of Lake Erie in Cleveland, I think something's about to explode, a gas storage tank containing liquefied natural gas sprang a leak, told you so, releasing a stream of cold gas that found its way into the city's sewers and ignited. The explosion sent manhole covers flying into the air for miles, which no matter how dangerous it was, that, that had to be kind of cool. After half an hour of deceptive calm, another gas tank at the same facility exploded, this time setting off a chain reaction of fires that coursed through the Cleveland sewer system for hours, causing sudden bursts of deadly flame to erupt from people's kitchen and bathroom drains which definitely would not be cool. 130 people died in the ensuing fires, while nearly 700 were left homeless with widespread destruction to homes, businesses, and urban infrastructure. Who knew that that sewers could be the cause of fires going up through your residence and drains and pouring out of their sink and tub spigots? I know I didn't. Now I do. It's going to be weird the next time I go to wash my hands or get a drink of water or go to the bathroom. I'm freaking out now about flames coming out of the drains. Oh my god. It took me years to get over the weird fantasy I had about snakes coming out of the toilet. Now I gotta deal with this? And that's why that's rotten history. And this is hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. Alex, who is on tomorrow's two-hour live streaming this is hell at thisishell.com beginning at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time here in Chicago. Uh, We have Andrea Boyles to talk about her book, You Can't Stop the Revolution. And Jenny Brown will be on to talk about her book, Without Apologies. And what about Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today? Uh, Henrik Mathiasen will be on to talk about 
uh, his big piece in the Dark Mountain Project on uh, Equinor, uh, Norway's oil and gas company. It's uh, really going to be great. You know what, Alex, uh, Equinor is trying to get a whole bunch of good publicity here in the U.S. and around the world as being the leader in wind technology now. And they know, they're saying that they can build wind technology in the North Sea. It's like hundreds of miles off the coast of England on this one, I think it's like on a shoal or something. And they say that they can do wind technology for profit without getting any subsidies. And they kept telling in this news report, without getting any subsidies, without any getting any subsidies, they can be profitable. At no point in the report do they point out that Ecuador gets subsidies for their oil and gas manufacturing, just like all fossil fuels get subsidies. So they didn't say in the report, hey, this is not only a sustainable alternative energy source, but we don't have to give them subsidies. They just don't want to make that point that we give so much, so many subsidies to oil and gas and fossil fuels. Maybe they can use the wind power to uh, power their uh, oil drilling station. <laughs> exactly. I like that. Uh, okay, so we hope to see you at our weekly uh, Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hal Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little Indian neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is Hal Office Hours is mostly a think and drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio, and you're going to want to be at this week's Office Hours because we will be celebrating our first week of doing weekday shows in our new regular format, and I plan on getting ripped. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host of whatever this is, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank Madeline Schwartz for being our guest this morning. Thanks to Alex Jerry for... Producing this morning's show, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for giving us both Rotten History and this week's Hangover Cure. And this week's Hangover Cure is Drink Like an Italian. I don't want to say the same joke I said earlier because I only want to get in trouble for that joke once. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this morning's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.